0: You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, November 7th, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Those of you that stayed up a little bit to binge on Netflix, according to most recent research, some of you, more than may be willing to admit it, spent time last night watching a TV show that debuted on September 22nd, 1994. A show that would leave an absolutely indelible mark, not only on American culture, but today, according to the most recent research from like the Nielsen company and the data that they collect, it is now, decades after its release, the most watched TV show in the entire United Kingdom. And according to Nielsen research, it is the most watched and streamed TV show in America concluding in 2020. It was a show about six young adults living their lives in New York City. And if you're sitting there going, here he goes with Seinfeld again, start counting. There's Jerry, Elaine, Kramer, George, Newman, maybe? You know, like, where's the six, George's dad? No. Friends was must-see television for those of us that were around when it debuted. And according to research, it still is today, since it's the most streamed show around the world right now. Ever since its release and its impact over the last couple of decades, sociologists, culture-interested folk have all tried to figure out why this show? I mean, why did this show have the impact on our lives and on our culture that it's had? it certainly can't just be the hairstyles that it set in motion and can't be all the celebrity cameos that we all tuned in to see, though. Like nearly every other week towards the end, there was someone new coming on the show that we had to come and watch. But of all the people who have tried to figure out why this show, why this impact, why is it still doing it, the most, I would say, probably astute commentary that I have read when people have talked about this began to point out that this television show had an ability to capture an ideal. It it could put its its finger directly on a longing that existed in every single one of our hearts, Uh, a longing and a desire for a type of connection, to be included, to be a part of a group, a particularly tight circle of trust and love. And every single week as our lives over the decades became more and more isolated and fractured, we could tune on must-see TV Thursday nights and watch six people, at least these six people, doing the very thing our hearts so long to do. Maybe at least they were able to, to do it, and we could join in by proxy. You see, the desire that they put their finger on in the show this longing they were able to capture it's a desire that exists in each and every single one of us because god put it there i mean to be more precise it exists in each of our hearts because god made us in his image and likeness see for all of eternity God has existed in this kind of circle of trust and relationship of, and love within himself, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And he created us in his image and likeness for participation in this eternal relationship of love that is him. But we know as we open up his word to try to understand not just who he is and who we are, but why things are the way they are, we learn that we have rejected him. What went wrong? Well, in the garden, we bought a lie about who he is, that he was holding out on us. And from that point forward, the truth of who he is being exchanged for lies about him took the relationship that we were created for with Him and replaced it with an alienation to Him. And from that point forward, death became a bitter reality in our lives. And ever since that moment, for every person born on this earth, your soul has been restless ever since. It was Augustine who was most famously quoted for saying that, "'You have made us for Yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless.'" Until it finds its rest in you. There is a restlessness in you, an aching in you for what you were created for and what we lost. And in this life, we find ourselves clinging to glimpses and shadows of that which we were created for things that can approximate what it is our hearts are so deeply longing for, but yet really not able to satisfy the restlessness. But what if we don't have to settle for the shadows? What if we actually don't have to settle just for the glimpses of what we were made for? What if that alienation can be replaced with the relationship we were made for? What if the lies can be replaced with the truth? What if death can be replaced with eternal life? What if you really could have that which you were created for? What if the restlessness could be satisfied? Would you actually want it? Would you actually want to know how to have it? Well, this is the very thing that is at the heart of the statement that Jesus makes about himself in John chapter 14 that we're going to consider this morning in our time together. This is going to be the sixth of the seven I am statements of Jesus. And so if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open it up to John chapter 14. If you need a Bible and you want to use one, that's right in front of you in the pew. It's on page 901. We're also going to be on page 900 a little bit. So just open it up right there and you'll be okay. Um, while you're turning in there, let me just add my welcome this morning. My name is Robert I am one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege of leading us now as we go to hear God from His Word. And so, as you're getting there, I want you to understand that When we come to the statement that Jesus is making about himself, and we're listening to Jesus tell us about himself, this is kind of Jesus according to Jesus. What is he saying about who he is and what that means for our lives? When we come to the statement he's making today in John chapter 14, we are coming to the climactic moment in his life and ministry on earth. We are coming to a point when all that he came to do, And all that he came to be for us is about to come to a head. The tension is building to a dramatic place. Now, the disciples don't quite catch it yet, but you need to understand it's in the mind and the heart of Jesus. So last week, when we looked at the fifth statement, we were in John chapter 11. Here's what's been happening ever since we left off last week. In John chapter 12, Jesus begins to make his way into Jerusalem for the very last time. From that point forward, everything is going to take place in a a one-week period, basically. Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem where he will, by the end of the week, willingly lay his life down on the cross to be sacrificed in our place for our sin. But in John's gospel, the way he's writing the story, John chapter 13 through John chapter 17... All four of those chapters. If you look in your Bible, there might be a heading there. It's called the Upper Room Discourse. All that happens in these chapters happens in a time when he's with just his 12. Eventually, it'll be just his 11 because Judas is going to leave in the midst of this. But this is Jesus' last time with his disciples. All that is being said in those chapters is Jesus giving his disciples, really, his farewell words, his last bit. And he's going to pray for them then in John chapter 17. And so I want you to understand that when we come to Jesus' statement about himself in John 14, there are a number of themes that all merge together to make sense of what he's actually saying about himself. And these themes begin to unpack why what he's saying matters not only to their hearts and lives then, but ours now. You can think about it like a bunch of tributaries feeding into a river, all of them coming in to bring the size and the swell of the river up down towards the mouth. There is a lot that he's bringing into this. And so here's what we're going to do. As we go through what he is saying and what's happening, I'm going to try to introduce you to these various themes that he's pulling on with the hope that as you understand them, when we get to what he's saying about himself, they will help provide clarity on the impact and the force of the statement that he's actually making. All right, sound fair? All right, so First theme, first thing that we have to understand as we hear Jesus in this moment with his disciples leading up to making this statement about himself, the big thing that we've got to pay attention to first is he is saying what he is saying in the very immediate shadow of the cross. And he is saying what he is saying in the very immediate shadow of the Passover sacrifice. The cross and the sacrifice play a big role in understanding what he's actually saying. So if you've got your Bibles open, just look back a little bit with me to John chapter 13, verse 1. This is where this conversation really begins. John records that before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, listen to this, he loved them to the end. Now, this is John writing this gospel account with the context that comes from hindsight. In the moment when he was sitting there in the room with Jesus that night, he didn't fully grasp all that was happening. But when he sat to write this gospel account of Jesus' life and ministry for those who would hear it, as God inspired him to do, he gives us a little bit of context. And we understand that Everything that Jesus is about to say to his disciples that night, he is saying in the very immediate shadow of the cross. He is headed that direction in a matter of hours. It's why he came. He he didn't come simply to be an exemplary teacher, to out-teach all of the rabbis in the Jewish community. No, he came to lay his life down in our place for our sins. He came to love us all the way to the end. Do you hear it? He loved us all the way to the end. He didn't pull up short when it got too hard. Knowing what it was going to cost to accomplish the mission that he was on, he didn't stop short and try to find another way. He loved us all the way to the end. And what the end was going to cost him was very real in his mind when he had this conversation. It plays a huge part in understanding what's going on in the mind and the heart of Jesus. And he's been trying to tell his disciples about it this whole time. Leading up to this, he's spoken about it repeatedly. They're still not quite getting it, but this is a huge part of this night and this moment. But it's not just that. John tells us very clearly the conversation is happening at a specific time it was a time of passover Now, Passover, we've talked about it here before if you've been with us, but just to be very, as brief as I can about it, Passover is one of the great festivals, the great feasts that God gave his people back in the Old Testament that served as part of their calendar year of worship that was always habituating their heart back to who God continues to be for them, has been for them, and who they are in relation to him because of his grace and his mercy and his sovereignty. Passover, in particular was a festival that commanded all of God's people to come to Jerusalem to celebrate, remembering God's powerful and gracious deliverance of them from slavery in Egypt, bringing them to the mountain, Mount Sinai, where he made his covenant with them, where he promised to be theirs and they to be his. And this meal, that, this meal that was celebrated in the Passover festival is kind of like the high point of the entire festival. And God gave very specific instructions for how it was to be celebrated. And we won't get into all the details, but all the elements of the meal were very important. There was a particular bread, the bread of affliction that had to be eaten and consumed, and consumed in a particular way. There, there was the lamb that had to be a particular kind of lamb and consumed and prepared in a particular way. There were the bitter herbs that were supposed to be there. And there were the four cups of wine that were to be shared throughout the meal at particular times for particular reasons. And it's these cups of wine I just want to kind of clarify for you a little bit. Each of these cups of wine, all four of them, they represented four promises that God had made to his people prior to bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. You can find it in Exodus chapter 6. I'll read it to you real quick. After God had called Moses to go and to to speak for his people, and and Moses was reluctant about it, and, and so God told him he could take Aaron, who he felt was a better speaker than he was, and they go back and they speak to the Israelites, they speak to Pharaoh, they tell Pharaoh to let the people go, and what does Pharaoh do? He doubles down on how poorly he treats the Israelites. So Moses goes back to God and says, wait, why did you make us do this? It's horrible. Now they hate us. Now he's treating us worse. And so in Exodus 6, God says this, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you to be mine. Each of those cups represented one of those four different promises. The promise would be recited. A blessing would be prayed. They would share and drink from that cup of wine, and the dinner would continue to go on. And so on this night in John chapter 13 and 14, Jesus is celebrating that Passover meal with his disciples, except he does it a little bit different if you're familiar with the story. He gets to the bread of affliction, and he says, this bread, this is my body, broken for you. He gets, scholars say, to that third cup, the cup of redemption, and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant, in my blood. Take and drink. He says, I won't drink from the vine again until I return, which leaves the fourth cup that I will take you to be mine, still yet to have been consumed by Jesus that night, which is a whole other story in and of itself. But that's what's actually happening. In this moment, with his disciples, the promises of the Passover are colliding with the promised one and the shadow of what's about to unfold in the hours to come. As they celebrate this meal, and Jesus continues to speak and to talk and to be with them, he says some things that become a little concerning. In chapter 13, verse 33, he starts talking about leaving them. He says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. He immediately rolls right into a new commandment that I've give you to to love. But here's the thing. you got to love Simon Peter. Simon Peter doesn't hear a word Jesus says after that. He's so hung up on what Jesus just said, right? Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? We'll get to your new commandments. We'll get to love. We'll get to all that in a minute. But where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you can't follow me now. But you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. In verse 38, Jesus answered, and this is one of those, man, I can't wait to hear it in heaven. Like, I don't know that I'll ever get the tone right. But Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, it's very strong words, not soft. Truly, truly, I say to you, Look at what he says. Before the rooster crows tonight, you will have denied me three times. And now ignore the chapter numbers. Ignore the verse numbers. They're so helpful for finding things, but they get in the way of a good moment. Before the night ends, you're going to deny me. Let not your hearts be troubled. Listen, they are all kinds of troubled You've got to read it like a human. These men have left everything they knew to follow Jesus. They left families, they left businesses, they left promises of futures. Your business, like the fishermen, was your inheritance and your future. They've left everything and put all their chips in on Jesus. And in their time with Jesus, oh my goodness. So much inside of them had come alive because for this time, they were actually tasting the very thing they were made for. They were in that relationship of inclusion and love with the very one who spoke their being into existence, that which they were created for, that restlessness and aching was being satisfied. And they were there and they knew it. And then he said, I'm leaving you. Then he looked at Peter and said, before the night's over, you're going to deny me three times. And they're troubled because if he leaves, where does that leave us? We've left everything. Even if we could go back and pick up where we left off, now the Romans hate us. Now the religious leaders hate us. Now that circle, that trust, that love, that satisfaction of soul they've been experiencing, that thing that they tasted finally is gone. And so they're troubled. They're deeply troubled. This is the second tributary, the second theme, feeding into understanding the statement that Jesus makes. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, you've got to understand it's not an argument against false teaching. We're going to come back to this later. The truth of the statement is so anchoring to the soul. Yes, there is no way to the Father apart from Jesus, but he didn't say this to confront false teaching. That's not the context that he said it in. He said it in the context of soothing troubled hearts of people that he loved. And that's how I want you to hear it this morning. Jesus, as he begins to tell them that he's going to leave, he, he then shifts. Verse 2, he says, in my father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. And you know to where, the way to where I'm going. And, I have to think that after all these t- this time with Jesus, the whiplash that they would experience from the things that Jesus says and how he says them would have gotten better. But you've got to think at this moment and the trouble that their hearts are still wrestling with the idea of what he just said about the fact that he's leaving, the idea that Peter, of all people, would deny him before the night's over and now he's talking about going to his dad's house and making rooms. Like What are you talking about, Jesus? Well, this is the third big theme that kind of feeds into understanding what he says when he makes the statement about himself. Remember there were those four promises that God had made to his people back in Exodus that became part of the centerpiece of the celebration of Passover, remembering his deliverance? Well, in ancient Judaism, those promises and those cups of wine, they made their way into other celebrations and ceremonies as well. The biggest outside of the festivals was, the, was an ancient Jewish marriage ceremony. And their marriage ceremony was very different than ours. It had two big parts, and it took a long time. So let me explain it to you real quick, because you've got to catch this in line with what was happening that night and the theme that feeds in, or we'll miss a bit of what he's saying about himself. In those days, when a marriage was going to take place, there were two big parts, part one and part two. Part one, you, you might have heard before, it was called the betrothal period. This is when the the man and the woman who would be married, they actually sign a marriage covenant with one another that makes their relationship legally binding. They are legally together at that point. And in the ceremony of the signing of that covenant, a number of things would happen. We won't get into the details, but prayers would be prayed. Blessings would be offered. Those cups of wine would be shared. The promises of God remembered to his people. And then as that first part was kind of coming to an end, the bride price would be paid. The groom and his father would pay the price that the bride's father had set to have her as their bride. And then the groom, in return, would give gifts. There weren't a set kind. He would have to determine it. Gifts to his bride that would help encourage her to wait. Wait for what? Well, part two. Because as soon as part one was finished, you know what would happen? The groom would leave, and he would go back to his father's house. And when he went back to his father's house, he would begin to create space, a dwelling place in his father's house for himself and his bride. This still happens in a ton of parts of the world. We saw it with our own eyes in Afghanistan a house would become a multi-generational complex where the sons would make space in the father's house for he and his bride and their family to dwell. And so the son would go back, he would make a space, he'd make the dwelling, he'd build it into that family home, and only when the dad said it was ready and done would he go back to get his bride. But she had no idea when it was going to happen. Most of the time, it happened within a year, but she didn't know the exact time. So she waited. And at any point in that time, if either of them were unfaithful or either of them wanted to end this thing, you had to get a legal divorce because you were legally married. That's the situation Mary and Joseph were in. That's why when she became pregnant, she worried that Joseph would want to divorce her even though they had not finished the entirety of their marriage ceremony. Make sense? So... Room gets ready. Now he goes back. That's part two. The groom and the dad family go back. They get the bride. The bride's made her family. They go back to the father's house where the second half of the ceremony takes place. There again, lots of drinking, lots of dancing, lots of praying, lots of blessings. The father gives the bride her inheritance at that point. And then, well, they seal the deal. Kiss the bride. You know, there you go. Now, You are officially married. I want you to hear Jesus now. Hear him sitting there that night with his disciples. Taking the cups, I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to redeem you. Take you to be mine. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come and get you so that you can be with me. Do you hear him? the promises of Passover. It's the promises of covenant relationship coming from the mouth of the very promised one of God. Well, if you heard it, you have better ears than disciples. Because verse 5, Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? He missed it. Now, I won't get into the fact that if you go read Matthew's account and the days leading up to this dinner, Jesus told multiple parables about weddings and feasts and bridesmaids. I'm trying to help you get this. He literally takes the elements of Passover. It's my body. It's my blood. I've been telling you this is going to have to happen. I'm going to back to play, prepare a place for us. Where are you going? I don't know. Just tell me. I promise. I'll make sure we you follow directions. I'll make sure we have all the right things. I'll let Peter even die if we have to. <laughs> and so what does Jesus do? In frustration for not being heard the 10,000th time, he throws the wine down, storms out of the room? No. Verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Listen to me. Yes, this is one of the most clear statements of the exclusivity of faith in Christ that is necessary for salvation. Yes, it is fundamental to our heart and our soul. It anchors us like nothing else in a world of pluralism and secularism. Yes, but remember, Jesus did not make this statement as a critique of other religions and philosophies. He did not make this statement about himself in that moment to criticize false teaching. He said it to soothe their troubled hearts. And so that's how I want you to hear it this morning. Yes, it is central like this, but listen to him. I am the way to the Father. I'm not here to point you to Him. I'm not here to direct your path. I am the way to Him. I am the way to the very thing your heart is so restless for, the very thing you were created for and longing for. That relationship of love and and trust and inclusion with God himself that was lost in the garden. The alienation you've been feeling ever since. The restlessness that has led you down 10,000 paths settling for lesser substitutes. I am the way. You've tried a thousand different ways to satisfy it. A thousand different ways to calm the restlessness. It's me. It's me. What he's saying should sound sweet to our souls. He's saying that you and I can have the very relationship, the love, the inclusion, the trust with God Almighty that we were created for. And he is the way. That's why he says in verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and you've seen him. It's me. I am the way for you to know the father. One writer said Jesus Christ is the living embodiment of God's gracious character as the one who loves. This love is not an abstract notion or a set of feelings but is rather characterized by the action of God in the person of Jesus. I am the way for you to truly know him. Not know about him, for you to really know him. For all those false notions you have of him, of being some kind of boss and and mean, angry taskmaster, I'm the way for you to know him as a father. For all the insecurity and uncertainty you feel about who he is and what he thinks about you, I am the way for you to know him. For you to know the love and the security and the hope and the joy. I am the way. Friends, this is relationship language. Jesus is saying that we come to know the Father, that that the thing our heart is so desperate for, to dwell in his house and his kingdom. We come to know him through the Son. I am the way because I am the truth. Jesus is the physical embodiment of the revelation of God. He is truth. He, John says, is God's word God's truth made flesh. This is a massive theme for John's gospel. If you want to take some time this week and go back to the beginning of John's gospel and just read it through, just forget the chapters and the verse, just read it. You will see over and over and over again, John tugging on this themes of word and truth. It's important to understand when he starts this gospel, he says that in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. Now behind the word, word, is the Greek word logos. You've got to understand, we miss a little bit of it in English. In Jesus' day and in the preceding century, the idea of logos was more than just word, spoken words. The idea of logos in the Greek empire that had so shaped and influenced the world that Jesus was in, Greek philosophers took this word logos, and for them, it, it meant... The ultimate reality behind everything. It was the why behind everything. Philosophical quests in the Greek empire were all about trying to understand this logos, this universal why. You couldn't live your life fully and completely without understanding the logos, the why. What's the big why? What is the reason behind everything? John's gospel was so explosive and continues to be so explosive because he says the why, the truth, the logos, the one who holds all things together by the word of his power, the why became flesh and dwelled among us. You see, everybody functions with a why, even if you're not aware of it. And if the why that is animating your life is not the logos, the word, the truth made flesh in Jesus, your why, your truth will ultimately only tyrannize you. It will ultimately only demand of you and destroy you. It can't love you. It can't forgive you because it's a thing. It's an abstraction. John says, "Truth, the why, the logos, became flesh, a person, to love you and to forgive you. The absolute became flesh and blood. This is what you were made for." He'd write, "The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth, why, came through Jesus." No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. So one commentator said, Truth is not finally to be found in abstract notions or theories, but rather in the person of Jesus Christ, the unique Son of God, the living embodiment of truth. From this perspective, knowing truth depends on being in a proper relationship to this one who is. Is truth. We could do an entire sermon series on this idea in the day in which we live, but it wasn't all that different in the day in which it was written. You see, what this means at a very surface level is that there are some things that are true for everyone, regardless of social status, personal opinion, political persuasion, there are some things that are true for everyone the way to the Father, to that which you were created for, to the satisfaction of the restlessness of your heart and soul, is through the Son, the truth. That is true for everyone. And it's the best of news. Please understand, Christian, if you're here this morning, It is not in any way, shape, form, or fashion disrespectful to make that claim. To say that for everyone in all places and in all times, that this is true for everyone. It's not disrespectful. It is the height of loving your neighbor. It is the height of even loving your enemies. It's not disrespectful. I am the way, Jesus said, because I am the truth, the logos, the revealed truth of God behind everything. I am the way because I, myself, Jesus said, am the eternal life of God. You know, as the night goes on with Jesus and his disciples, the the discourse, the, the, the conversation, it, it ends with Jesus praying for them, praying even for us as you listen to him. And as he prayed, he said this, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He, do you understand that for the benefit of his disciples, as he is praying to the Father, Jesus is helping us understand that knowing God is not just the point of life. Knowing God is the definition of life, two vastly different things. The definition of truly living of life that you and I were created for is in knowing God. Not just propositional ideas about Him, but this relationship of trust and love, and inclusion that he created our hearts for. There's a place in in Jeremiah 9 in the Old Testament. You you can go back and, and read it at some point this week. But God says through Jeremiah, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understand and knows me. That's what you were created for. That is the why, that you would know and enjoy God. And God said to the prophet Jeremiah, it's been proven out in every year and decade and century ever since, knowing God is far more satisfying than being the wealthiest, most powerful, strongest person in the world because it's what you were made for. It is real life. It is the zoe, the living, that Jesus has been talking about, that John has been so fixated or unpacking. And if we're really honest, and God would give us ears to hear this morning, it's what you want. Jesus says he is the way. If you have me, If you take me, if you believe into me, if you follow me, you will have life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, there are a couple of really big misconceptions that come out of this statement that Jesus is making, this conversation. And I want to point a couple of them out to try to clarify them, but to allow the clarity, hopefully, to drive home Jesus' point as we try to wrap this up. In verse 2, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If you grew up in the church, then you may have encountered at some point, maybe a song or a teaching or something that came from the Latin translation of the Bible. In the Latin translation or the Vulgate, when they get to this verse, they translate this many rooms into the Latin for mansions. The King James Version used the Latin translation for its translation. And so a lot of the American church grew up with this idea that Jesus has gone away to prepare mansions for us. Elvis even sang about it. Like, we grew up with this whole idea if you grew up in the church. But the translation not intentionally, missed the theme that Jesus was picking up on and talking to his disciples and this theme of covenant relationship that he was promising, that he was inviting them into. And so when he says, if it weren't so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? A lot of the American church has grown up thinking that right now Jesus is kind of like Fix-It Felix from Wreck-It Ralph. He's up in heaven somewhere, the hammer that only he can wield, and, you know, he's building these giant mansions for all of us, and so many people keep becoming followers of Jesus, he can never catch up. He's just constantly building mansions, and when he gets them all built, and he catches up on the pearly gates and all the gold streets, then it's all going to be okay. That is not at all what he is saying. Listen to me real quick. Where did Jesus go to prepare a place for us to be with him and the Father. Where did he go that they couldn't go with him? Where did he go to bring us out, to deliver us, to redeem us, to make us his own? Where did he go to prepare this place? In a few short hours from that meal, he would go to the cross Where he would suffer and die in our place for our sin. The price being paid to redeem, to deliver, to bring out, and to make us his own, to restore us. The bride price for our soul was paid by the groom. And I want you to catch it when you listen to the themes, all that he's bringing into this. He did it willingly before anyone ever said yes to him. You want to know the depth of his love? What has so captivated John when he begins this thing, saying he loved us all the way to the end, before anyone said yes, he went and died in our place for our sins. Three days later, rising from the grave, defeating death itself. Days after that, ascending through the heavens to the right hand of God. And he did it to prepare a place for us. He did it that you and I may know him. He did it that we would have eternal life. He did it that we could have the very thing we were created for. If I go to prepare a place for you, he said in verse 3, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. What a promise. Eternal, never-ending satisfaction because we're with Jesus. All the earth will shout your praise. Hearts will cry. These bones will sing. Great are you I think the reason we long so little for this is because we've settled for knowing so little about Him. And the less we've settled about knowing Him, the more we've allowed our relationship with Him to be one of informational and propositional truth, less about the intimacy and the relationship and the love and the trust and the connection He has made away and prepared for us the more our earthly ideas begin to creep into what he has prepared for us and what awaits us for all of eternity. And so some of us live in houses bigger than the ones we imagine we think we might have in heaven. So I don't really long for that day because it's not really about him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You get me. Friends, he's inviting us into the relationship that we were created for. And you can say yes. But make no mistake, a decision has to be made. And what he has prepared for us, what he has accomplished for us, the life, the relationship that he is holding out to us, it's not something you can inherit. It's not something you can absorb. It certainly isn't something you can earn. What your soul longs for from God, the very thing you were created for, it comes when you receive Jesus. If you want to really know the Father, if you want to be in this relationship that you were created for, the satisfaction of your soul, the quelling of the restlessness of your heart to be a part of his house, to enter into his kingdom, you have to say yes to his son. This is why the psalmist and the writer of Hebrews, I love it, they repeat it over and over again, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. As one pastor said, we must acknowledge that if these words of Jesus are true, as we believe they are, then although they are indeed exclusive, they ought not be offensive, for they're actually what we most need as a human being. They should be received with joy and thanksgiving. Friends, if you said yes to Jesus, this is the language of invitation. Rebecca McLaughlin, some of you have read some of her books, she's a fantastic writer. She said, if we take Jesus' claims about himself seriously, we will recognize the seriousness of being separated from him. If Jesus is the light of the world as he claims to be, then being without Jesus means living in utter darkness. If Jesus really is the bread of life, then being without Jesus means being desperately hungry. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then being without Jesus means being utterly, finally, and hopelessly dead. If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then being without Jesus means being eternally lost. Friends, have you taken Jesus' words about himself seriously? He is the way, the truth, and the life. You can come to the Father, but you can only come to the Father and have that which you were created for by coming through Him. Christian, if you're here this morning, does your heart long for the day of His return? Or have you allowed earthly ideas of Jesus and His promises to dull your desire for Him? If that's the case, listen, Ask him to help you by his spirit, his spirit alive and at work in you. Ask him to help you to see Jesus more clearly, that you might begin to long for him more deeply. You see, if you keep reading John 14, I promise I'm about to stop. you keep reading John 14, you see that the groom left a gift for us. John 14, if you keep reading, in verses 14 through 17, Jesus talks about his spirit that he is going to give us. His very Holy Spirit, the comforter and the counselor, the one alive and at work in us, teaching us to walk in his truth, to enjoy his relationship, the one who comforts us and counsels us and gives us life. Even now, for those who have received Jesus, we get a taste, a taste of what we were made for and the living and building expectation and hope of what is to come. Friends, let your hearts not be troubled. He has gone before you. He's prepped a place for you. He's promised to come again, to bring us to himself. May that be not just our best argument. May it not just be our best proof text. May it be comfort to your soul. Let me pray for us as we get ready to respond to God's word this morning. Father, it was in your wisdom that you made a way for your mercy to satisfy our restless souls, to give us that which we were created for, to give us the relationship with you, the satisfying, all-sufficient knowledge of you, knowing you, real life. There are so many ways out there, promising things they can't deliver, leaving our hearts restless and aching and longing. Lord, for Jesus' glory, for our deepest and abiding joy, we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would make him would make Jesus, the one who is the way, make him the most real and satisfying thing to our hearts. We ask that you would do that in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.